Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. I'm curious about what it looks like for a priest to go buy cocaine. Do you do you go, is this a plain clothes operation? Some people would say, who in their right mind would sell cocaine to a priest? The, <laughs> uh, the dealer, I wasn't going down to uh, Fifth Avenue and, and uh, you know, 32nd Street to buy my cocaine. Early on, I was buying from a second-hand or middle person. And then after uh, my consumption started to get bigger or greater, is I asked him, who do you get this from? Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe, Blasting Game, and I am your host. Today, we have Stephen Donnelly. Stephen Donnelly's memoir, A Saint and a Sinner, details the rise and fall of a beloved Catholic priest living two lives. Having been enticed by a lifestyle that involved drinking and drugging in his 20s, it may seem odd that Stephen entered seminary to become a priest in his 30s. But at the age of 42, Stephen was ordained as a Roman Catholic priest. He stood before God, the bishop, and the congregation and made promises he struggled to keep. Three years into his priesthood, Stephen descended deeper into a world of cocaine, alcohol abuse, and relationships with women. When his drug use became known, fellow priests intervened, and after multiple stints in rehab, Stephen turned his life around and became well-known in Alcoholics Anonymous circles as the Irish priest with a problem. Stephen's memoir includes many stories about repentance, regret, transformation, forgiveness, and redemption. His story is a brutally honest reminder that drug addiction can affect anyone, even a Roman Catholic priest. Stephen, my Catholic priest friend, my sober Catholic priest friend. Uh, this was super fun. Uh, Stephen's story is, you know, it's a perfect example of how addiction uh, does not, doesn't care who you are, what promises you made and to whom. I love this line that Stephen descended deeper into the world of cocaine, alcohol, abuse, and relationships with women. Because I was like, that sounds really fun. But... I mean, Stephen thought so too. What I thought was interesting, aside from the, of course, Roman Catholic priest part, was how addiction spoke to Stephen during his times of use and while he was in seminary. And then, of course, all the way up into the point where he had an intervention. Because the spiritual aspect, you know, a lot of the time in the 12 steps, it just talks about a spiritual malady. And uh, through this, Stephen is engaged in a very robust spiritual life while also being addicted to cocaine and living this double and, and sometimes even triple life. I found it very interesting to hear a perspective where that wasn't enough. And I know a lot of people think that, oh, if you have a strong faith or if you if you go to church or if, you, you know, these people don't do these things, right? There's a lot of thoughts around like, if you do this, if you go to church every Sunday or if you are, are truly devout, right, that will stop you from doing these other things. And here's an example of addiction just being stronger. And I love that he talks about what he's done in his recovery and really explains the mindset of a priest 
in the grips of addiction. I know you will be very entertained and intrigued by the story. So I look forward to hearing all of your feedback. Talk to us on Instagram about any of your thoughts, ideas, questions. We look forward to hearing from you. Episode 121. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Stephen, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. And I thank you for for having me as a guest. This is very exciting. Um, We start this show by uh, with a a bad hair picture, a bad hair photo. And I have your photo here. We we posted on our Instagram with the episode. Tell me about the photo that you sent me. Tell me about what's going on in this photo and tell me about your haircut. Well, that first and foremost was back in the 70s. I was in college at the time, and uh, perms were uh, an order of uh, (laughs) haircuts for for many of us, uh, male and female. I had a friend uh, who was a beautician, hairdresser, and I went to her and I said, Annette, is there any chance that I could get a perm? And she said, of course. So uh, she permed me, and I probably had that hairstyle my uh, sophomore and junior years of uh, college, and any time that it started to grow out, I would just go back to Annette and get another perm. And it was very easy, uh, especially in the summertime, to go swimming, come out of the water, and you, you didn't even need a pick. You just um, fluffed it up, and all was well. And a little bit else with that perm is uh, back in the mid-70s, there was a soap opera, General Hospital, and the two stars of the show uh, were uh, used their uh, stage names, uh, Luke Spencer and uh, Laura. And Luke uh, was tall, slim, and had a perm. Anthony Geary is his real name. And oftentimes, people would, when I was walking down a sidewalk or in a restaurant, people would look, and I was even asked uh, frequently, was I Luke Geary? Was I Anthony Geary? Was I Luke from General Hospital? And, um, and, you know, I got a little play out of it. But, uh, yeah, that was, my God, 45 years ago, a long time ago. I love it. I So I have really naturally curly hair that I straighten. So to me, the perm, the idea of a perm is insanity. But I, <laughs> I, I can see how that would be really in. And so how old are you in this, in this photo that, that I have? It's on our Instagram. Probably uh, 19, 20, 21, right, right around 20 years old, 40, 46 years ago. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So for, for a little background information at this time, so you're, you're one of four kids and uh, your, your father was an alcoholic mom threw him out and you were one of the only kids that went to church every week. And you thought that 
you were, you were, you know, a child, a kid of faith, and you also wanted to be a police officer, a priest or a police officer. And at this time is around the time that you actually start drinking and and using right around 21. Yes. Yes. You know, as I had drank and smoked pot in my teens, but it was around that uh, period, 2021, where I started to, uh, I was introduced to cocaine at 21 in uh, California with my cousin and the drinking started to build and build, you know, from 20, 21 years old forward. So I find it interesting. I was, I was reading through some of your background and I was like, okay, so I'm trying to put a picture together of you, who you were and, and, and how, you know, kind of what the order of events were. I find it very interesting that you had aspirations. You're very, uh, uh, you know, a child, a kid of faith. And you also wanted to go into law enforcement and then started using cocaine and and, and alcohol. And I wondered how it, a lot of parents think that if your kid goes to church, if they have a strong faith, that these are inoculations against drug use or an alcohol abuse. What do you think of that? How did that, how did, how did you reconcile those things? I would reconcile it by saying that regardless of one's level of faith, and I, and I would suppose, uh, I would almost state that my faith was uh, very profound, but it, for an addictive person is once we need to get outside of ourselves, and yes, we can turn to God, but we can also turn away in the sense of my minor God became my addiction, became my alcohol, became my cocaine. And even though I continued to go to church, I continued to pray, I was so wrapped up into the uh, my drugs of choice that the religion was just something almost like a mask that, okay, I'm going to church, I'm okay. And I found out in ministry uh, after I became a priest that that was uh, quite common that people, you know, I love the word you use, inoculation is almost like now the, the key word is vaccination, but it's the addiction has the power over it. And once I got completely absorbed in it, church was something that, uh, yes, I went every week, I prayed every day, but part of that prayer was praying that I would have enough money for my <laughs> next, uh, you know, uh, gram of cocaine or, or whatever and, and, and drink. So I'm sure that for many people, it was uh, an inoculation. It prevented them from going off uh, into the wild like I did. But I think when we come into recovery, we go back to that God of our understanding of our youth and realize we do have a God of forgiveness. And I just had turned away from, from that God in the sense of not letting, not turning my will over to God and, and letting God, or, you know, help me get away from my addiction, which he has later on in life, of course. Yeah. It's interesting though, because in, in a sense, um, you know, you use the words, you know, the term turning away from, from God. And I think this is something that, that is talked about a lot in recovery, right? We turned our back on, these are kind of terms that we hear in your case though. So you start using around 21 
And then in your thirties, you get called to the priesthood. So you actually turned towards what one is so right. There's the house of God, right? Like the, the, the religion, the kind of structural part of, of religion and God, but, but go with me here, which is you were using and turned toward religion in this, in this case. And to me, I went to Catholic school for uh, eight years. And I started in first grade at Sacred Heart and I'm not Catholic. So um, it didn't have the same effect on me going home and having this, you know, having my parents be Catholics, et cetera. But I can say that I found, I would be interested to hear what kind of stories, what kind of dialogue was going on in your head while you're simultaneously drinking and using and then get called to the priesthood and continue that. Because as I have experienced, you know, I'll just stick to, you know, Catholicism, those two things are really hard to reconcile in the same moment. Absolutely. I I concur. And I think for me is to put a little timeline on it. Late 20s, early 30s, using, uh, I was working, I was in retail store management and did well, Um, you know, never had any problems. I wasn't calling out sick and I wasn't, you know, doing chaotic things, so to speak. And after the call to the priesthood or during the call to the priesthood, my cocaine use went down, my drinking went down. And while in the seminary, uh, it was a six-year program, I I wasn't abstinent in any means, but I was uh, a light weekend warrior. And I, I was turning to God to, yes, study and pray. And I think during that six-year period, my my usage certainly subsided quite a bit. Uh, and then when I was ordained uh, Catholic priest at 42, it went wild. It really, uh, I, I was living a dualistic, a double life, like, excuse me. Uh, and I think that, you know, turning to the religion was a very positive influence for me to cut back and reduce uh, my consumption of alcohol and, and cocaine. And it was, you know, not a dry period, not at all. But actually, there was uh, periods of abstinence completely, uh, you know, especially during the season of Lent. And I didn't think I had a problem because if I could give it up for 40 days, Mm -hmm. well, I don't have a problem. You know, the classic denial. But religion, Catholicism certainly helped me during that uh, training period, so to speak, to to reduce what I was doing. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. You grew up in Long Island in a town called Deer Park. And um, I, I'm your dad was, a, you know, what you refer to as a, a full-blown alcoholic. What did you know when you were growing up? What was your home life like? And what did you know about alcoholism? What I knew about it was the fact that my father, there was always liquor and beer in the house, and I would have been eight, nine, ten years old, and my parents got divorced when I was about ten. And what I knew is, you know, my grandfather, my dad's father, uh, was an alcoholic as well. My dad had three sisters who were all alcoholics. My grandmother on my mother's side was an alcoholic. 
So anytime there was a party at the house, alcohol was flowing. And I remember my father would be driving somewhere with a, a beer between his legs. And, you know, I'd be sitting in the front seat. Uh, so I was very cognizant of alcohol and not realizing what alcoholism was as a young lad of 10, but certainly lived around it. Then after the divorce, uh, my father remarried and we would go stay with him every other weekend. And I still remember vividly on Friday afternoons before we got to his house, before we picked up the pizza pie for Friday night dinner, we'd stop at the liquor store as well. And, um, you know, dad was off over the weekend and drinking Friday night, uh, Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening. And then, of course, Sunday, he would take us to church or at least take a couple of us to church and then, you know, bring us home. But uh, my father, I remember more times with my father uh, drunk, his drunkenness, than he was sober. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that would that sounds like a very classic description. Did you had you ever heard that word? No, I I never remember my mother saying your father's an alcoholic. I'm not saying it wasn't in the, the vocabulary, but I, I think my first time recognizing alcoholism, I don't want to sound naive, was probably uh, in high school. When I would hear about it, you know, maybe in a public, uh, what do they call it, health class or, or science class, you know, uh, different things. And to remember back then, 50 years ago, it, people didn't consider it a disease. I'd have to say in the 21st century, some people don't consider it a disease. And it was like, you know, talking with friends and, you know, when we would go out and drink after a football, basketball, baseball game, somebody might say, oh, you know, my uncle's an alcoholic. Uh, and I really could not have defined it at that point in time. And then I suppose, you know, when I got into college and would hear more of it and, and probably witness it. To remember also that back then people didn't come out like they do today. And, you know, John Brown is going away to rehab and John Brown starred in three different movies or played for the Los Angeles Lakers. We didn't hear that uh, back then. Uh, and so I, I guess it was... In, in college, I finally understood, you know, what, what alcoholism was. And, of course, I denied that I was an alcoholic. Uh, I was certainly in my preliminary stages, maybe even secondary stages. But um, I never said I was an alcoholic uh, probably until I got into rehab at 42 years old. So when, when I got to rehab after the intervention uh, and then, you know, I had to admit that I was an alcoholic and, the admittance is the easy part. The acceptance is so much tougher. Yes, yes. So you you went to school to be a police officer. Is that accurate? Yes, it was. I went to college. I got a degree in criminal justice. Uh, this was in the mid-70s, and I took a number of civil service examinations for county police officers, New York City police officers, state trooper. And I would score well, but it was also a time period where uh, men and women were coming back from uh, the Vietnam conflict, and they would get 10 veteran credits, uh, for well-deserved for doing their service. So, for example, if I wrote a 93 on an examination, a scored a 93 uh, uh, on an examination, and somebody else had scored an 85 but had served in Vietnam, 
in active duty, they would have uh, got 10 extra points. So got it. Uh, got it. they bumped me, uh, bumped me out. And it's, you know, it, it happened. Uh, and uh, as I look back, uh, you know, I was disappointed at that time. But um, as life moved forward, I accepted it, that it wasn't, it wasn't God's uh, call for me to uh, become a police officer or go into law enforcement. How, how did you get the call to the priesthood? What did that look like? It was a beautiful story. In 19, uh, I was very active in Knights of Columbus. Some people call it the, uh, the right arm of the Catholic Church. It's a uh, Catholic fraternal organization, Knights of Columbus. The women have what they call the Columbiettes. And they asked me to become the religious liaison because they knew, you know, the people in the Knights of Columbus knew that I went to church frequently and had somewhat a rapport. So one of my responsibilities as being the religion liaison uh, was to arrange a clergy night where I went to the different faith-based communities in Deer Park and asked the pastor, minister, rabbi, to invited them to a clergy night where they would all we would all come together and they'd give a little story about uh, their ministry, their church, or whatever. And I invited the pastor of uh, Saint Cyril Methodius, my home parish, to come and uh, Brendan Reardon. And after that, that evening, at the end of the evening, he looked at me and he said, "Stephen, he says, have you ever considered becoming a priest?" He says, "You'd be a fine candidate." And that was. Ashley, the first time that anybody had ever broached that question, that subject to me. And I said, well, I, I haven't, but I could think about it. And lo and behold, about six months later, the Diocese of Rockville Center, which is two counties, Nassau and Suffolk County here on Long Island, had a called by name program in which they asked people in church, in the pews, to think of somebody in their family or in a neighborhood who may be a candidate for priesthood or religious life to become a brother or a sister. And I listened to the pastor uh, speak about the vocations, and I said, wow, this sounds a little bit interesting. Two weeks later, I received a letter from the bishop inviting me to a uh, an afternoon of reflection that somebody had considered me worthy of that call. I went that afternoon, this would have been June of 1990, and listened to different people speak about their personal vocation to religious life. And I, you know, signed up. I didn't sign up in the sense of I was accepted the next day, but I spoke to the vocation director and said I would be interested. The summer passed by, July, August, and then early September, I got a phone call from uh, Father Bill Koenig and inviting me to sit down and speak with him. And I did that on September 17th, 1990. I began the process, the uh, application process, which was very extensive. And then on December 26th, which happens to be the Feast of St. Stephen, many people know it as the day after Christmas or Boxing Day, but with the name Stephen, I know it as the Feast of St. Stephen. I received a letter and uh, with my acceptance to um, not so much the priesthood, but the seminary, which is the formation process leading up to priesthood. I was as happy as a pig in whatever and uh, started to tell everybody during the application process, I was very quiet about it because uh, I've always had 
this fear of rejection and how would it be if I told uh, Ashley and everybody else in my life that I was applying and that I got did not get accepted. So late 1990, early 1991, I told many people and then I began the formation process in September of 1991. And uh, in that time period, I, I took about five months off. I left my place of employment in March of 1991. And I just uh, enjoyed life. And, and as I alluded to earlier, my alcohol and cocaine consumption, you know, was, uh, I wouldn't say minimal, but certainly not alcoholic or uh, drug addicted behavior because I had something, a goal in front of me and uh, I didn't want to mess it up. So um, that began a period from 1991 to 97, where, yes, I did use cocaine. I did drink, but uh, never publicly intoxicated uh, or, you know, getting jammed up, so to speak, uh, with cocaine. What is it about the, see, as someone who uh, used a lot of drugs and alcohol, uh, particularly at a young age, I wonder, what is it about priesthood that spoke to you and, and made you think that I, this is something that I'm capable of doing, even though I am currently dabbling in these things and why the desire, you know, the celibacy aspect of it, did that, was that daunting to you at all? Yes, great question. It, it, to to address the second half, um, the celibacy. Yes, it, it, it was daunting, but I figured that I was giving myself to God, and not that I'm being married to God, but that this would be my life. And for the first uh, five years, four four and a half years of my priestly formation, I remained celibate until. Uh, on my internship year that I met a woman and began a relationship. But what called me to the priesthood, I could easily answer God and that that would be correct. But it was the ability to help others. I always thought of myself as a generous person, a charitable person. And even though I had my own issues, uh, I felt that I had the capacity to help others through different problems and situations. And I would think that so much of my ministry after I became a priest was helping others, especially, especially after I got clean and sober. But even before that, uh, people would ask me, you know, oh, Father, I'm having this difficulty. Can I sit down and talk with you? And, And I am codependent, so I do enjoy helping others and, and putting the next person, the other person in front of uh, myself and not realizing during my active drinking and drugging that if I didn't take care of myself, I certainly could not be a hundred percent viable to someone else. Uh, but I was only, that's only in retrospect. So my first few years of priesthood helping others. Yes. Did people come to me and say, thank you very much. You know, you got me through this situation, this crisis, whatever. But um, I realized after after getting clean and sober, how much better I was at, at helping others. I'm curious about what 
it looks like for a priest to go buy cocaine. Do you do you go? Is this a plain clothes operation? Yes, uh, wonderful, wonderful. Because some people would say, "Who in their right mind would sell cocaine to a priest?" The <laughs> uh, the dealer. I wasn't going down to uh, Fifth Avenue and, and uh, you know Thirty Second Street to buy my, my cocaine. Early on, I was buying from a second hand or middle person, and then after uh, my consumption started to get bigger or greater is I asked him, who do you get this from? And can you introduce me? And uh, rather than this gentleman stepping on it, so to speak, and shortchanging me, I went right to the source, uh, a dealer who was getting cocaine right off the the Avianca Plains coming up from uh, Bogota, Colombia. And of course, my usage went up and he knew that I was a priest. Uh, this gentleman owned a restaurant and I would go to the restaurant, uh, walk in the back door, uh, sometimes plain clothes, sometimes in a sweater or a sport shirt. And a couple of times, not often, but a couple of times uh, with the black shirt on and a white collar. And coming into the back door, of course, who was in the kitchen a couple of Latinos, and um, I do have some proficiency in Spanish language, so I'd be talking to them and asking them uh, where this gentleman was, and then he would come back. He might have been out in the uh, bar area, restaurant, and we'd go into his office, and I would get it from him. But um, it wasn't as though I would think that from the time I was ordained to the time I stopped, uh i be honest, I don't remember buying from anybody else except this gentleman. And I just figured, okay, this is the way it goes. And the stuff that he was uh, was buying was good. So uh, if he wasn't around, uh, you know, this was the thing, too, is I was able to abstain uh, for periods of time. Uh, and that's why I never considered myself an addict, because I, I could stop for a week or two. I went to Columbia in 1997 and didn't use cocaine the whole time of the four weeks I was in Colombia. So, um, well, you that's know, I silly. Up, yes, this uh, invincibility about it. And I also was able to hide it. I had a girlfriend from the previous to ordination uh, until after coming back from rehab and hid it from her. Uh, when I was, when they had the intervention, five, five years in a fairly good relationship when I had to tell her I was up in rehab and she said, why? And so I just had this aura about me that I was different, uh, not because I was a priest, but that because I was able to hide my usage. Uh, and uh, she knew that I drank and um, she accepted that. And, and I just would not use in her presence. So, um, yeah, I, I built up this, uh, I don't want to say wonderful, but this silly uh, life of living probably three different lives. Stephen, the priest, helping others, taking care of church business. Uh, so being a boyfriend uh, to her. And then Stephen, the uh, drug addict alcoholic in the privacy of his own room. That sounds like a lot to hold on your plate and, you know, all at once. But the good news is probably that the cocaine probably helped your sermons because I can't imagine it wouldn't. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I do have this gift of gab. I back in, <laughs> I did go to Ireland, and I uh, being the name Donnelly, and I did kiss the Blondie Stone, but I didn't need to get down on my chat, uh, my back. If you if the Blondie Stone, you have to lay down and looking over a tower, looking down into uh, down to the ground, and then you kiss the Blondie Stone. But I do have a gift of gab, and, and it certainly helped. Yes, the cocaine certainly helped my energy level. And um, what I would say, and I, I do have to say that a good part of my priesthood was my preaching ability. And yes, pre, uh, uh, pre-recovery, but certainly post-recovery. Uh, because many of the gospel passages uh, would have Jesus healing the sick. Uh, and when I had the courage, after about eight years of recovery, to announce to people that I was in recovery, the reception that I got was fantastic. People were so supportive of it. And, um, you know, I know that it made me a better priest getting into recovery. Oh, I'm sure. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley Joe, producer of The Courage to Change, and I wanted to chime in and let you know about our new mobile app, Lion Rock Life. It is now available for download on your phone or tablet from the App Store or the Google Play Store. So here's the download on the app. The app is designed to streamline your online recovery experience, allowing you to view live meetings in progress, join meetings quickly, and build stronger connections in recovery. So whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're in recovery for something other than drugs or alcohol, the Lion Rock Life mobile app has a space for you. On the app, you'll find alternative recovery meetings, and traditional meeting offerings. We have everything from recovery fellowship to community workshops, LGBTQIA+, women's meetings, men's meetings, 12-step meetings, and more. With over 75 meetings on our weekly schedule, you'll find a meeting that meets your individual needs. And with the app, you can personalize your recovery experience join with privacy in mind, and recover with the support of an incredible community. Join us and find inspiration for a lifetime of recovery by downloading the Lion Rock Life mobile app today. If you have questions or need help, simply visit lionrock.life slash mobile dash app. Thanks. What was your um, intervention like? What 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 caused you to? What was the the thing that caused you to get into recovery? Well, uh, the intervention was November twenty ninth, two thousand, and what had happened is uh, the sister, the nun, the, uh, sister Lorraine, who was the principal of the school, was in recovery. And I'm not breaking out the name because I could use uh, same way in the book. I use names to protect the innocent. But she noticed things about me, and it was in October of 2000 that the uh, there was a Subway series between the New York Mets, my favorite baseball team, and the New York Yankees. And I remember going into the school cafeteria, and I had a Met jacket on and always got along with the children, uh, the students, and whatever. 
and I got a, a, a chant going where half the cafeteria, maybe 150 children, was shouting Mets, and the other half was shouting Yankees, and sister came down wondering what the devil was going on, and she saw me, the mastermind, and that was one piece of it as I look back. Plus the housekeeper in the rectory had a daughter uh, who was a cocaine addict, and I was a sloppy, uh, well, at least on one occasion, I was a sloppy uh, cocaine addict, and I had a cut straw in the top of my uh, waste paper receptacle. And uh, she saw that. She gave it to the pastor. She said that she believed it was cocaine, and he had it tested, and sure enough, it was. So I think it was between the principal of the school the cut straw uh, that they determined, uh, you know, in my mannerisms and actions, of course, as I look back. And um, the priesthood has an EP, EAP, employment assistant uh, provider, and they set the intervention up, and I was completely thrown off guard by it. And when I was told that I was going up to a rehab that afternoon, of course, the Nile said in my mother was ill at the time, and I said that I needed to take care of my mother, but I hadn't been taken care of. That all fell in the lap of my, my younger sister. And uh, lo and behold, two hours after the intervention, there was a van outside the rectory, and I was going upstate New York to rehab, not knowing what I was getting into. And um, I can't say I went kicking and screaming. Uh, I was receptive. But basically, you know, the, the curtain was drawn. There was no uh, no more getting away from it, so to speak. And um, so uh, on the afternoon of November 29, 2000, I'm up at a rehab upstate New York. How did your, and this is also, you're also coming clean to your girlfriend at this time, right? I had to that, that evening when I called because we would speak two or three times a day and see each other two or three times a week at least, uh, and I had to tell her, and it was very hard to do. In fact, I was I was disingenuous that evening because I said they sent me to a facility. I said, I don't even know why they said something with my emotions. I didn't even have the courage to, to be honest with her that night and say that I was an addict and alcoholic. And then I I was, uh, because I can talk with the best of them, I was able to sneak her up there under the guise that it was my older sister uh, the first Sunday I was there. And the normal policy was you couldn't have any visitors for eight days, but I was um, connived and manipulated and got her up there under my, my, my other, my older sister's name. And, you know, people probably looked suspicious. Uh, Martika was a... Colombian descent, and she certainly didn't look Irish. And, you know, maybe uh, people thought that she just had a different father. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I was very, and it was very difficult to tell her. And yet she supported me 150%. It was just um, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And I guess, you know, when the cat got out of the bag, it was just, okay, I need to, you know, come clean. Uh, yet I still struggled with coming clean about everything. You know, when we talk about the fourth step, and there were things that I didn't put down in my first fourth step. Not at all. Not at all. It, it took months to, to, to come clean with certain things. How big of a deal is the celibacy 
as a Catholic priest, as, as I understood it, it's a pretty prominent part of being a priest. Yes, it, it, it's very prominent in the sense that when we are ordained, when you're ordained a priest, you take three vows. You take a vow of obedience, which means that you obey the bishop of your diocese and any of his successors. You take the vow of simple lifestyle, not poverty. Uh, certain religious orders, you take a vow of poverty. But our call was to simple lifestyle, which meant that you weren't going to the French Riviera every year on vacation. Uh, you probably weren't driving a BMW or a Mercedes. And you, uh, I mean, some priests had inherited money and they didn't get the money taken away. But you weren't living an exorbitant lifestyle. And then third vow was the, the vow of celibacy, which meant uh, no sexual relationships with anybody, including yourself. And it, it's a struggle. And as uh, having conversed with many priests, um, I can say it openly that there are many uh, homosexual priests, uh, some who do choose to live celibate and some who don't. Uh, there are uh, heterosexual priests, as I was, who may, uh, as I did, have a girlfriend. And, you know, what percent maintain that vow of celibacy? Uh, I, I'm not going to put a, a statistic, but I would say that there's um, many, many uh, priests uh, break the vow of celibacy during their priesthood. I would imagine. I would imagine that that would be a very difficult, if not nearly impossible, um, order for for most people. Yeah, it is because it's against the the natural order uh, of who we are as human beings. Uh, You know, I believe human beings are are made to to be in relationship and in what level of relationship and to maintain celibacy, which I did not do until my last uh, eight years of, uh, of priesthood that, you know, I was a celibate priest for, from uh, 2010 until 2018 when I was suspended. And it, it's difficult. It, it, it's very difficult. One of the difficulties that I found is not that, you know, people, you know, if, if, if you're a virgin going in, you're going to be a virgin coming out. But Having been involved in relationships pre-priesthood and during priesthood, it's almost like, I don't want to minimalize it, but if you've never had an ice cream soda, ice cream sundae, you don't know what it is. And somebody says, oh, you want a chocolate ice cream soda? And you just, no, no, thank you. Well, having been involved in a um, sexual relationship, it's difficult to, to to put it to bed, no pun intended. But uh, to 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 live a celibate life, and it's a struggle. It is a struggle. Well, I mean, the Protestants allow you to get married. Why not? I mean, like if it's such a big piece of it, and you're you're standing up at the pulpit and and you're telling people how to live their lives. How does that not conflict even in recovery when, you know, especially in recovery when there's such a degree of emphasis on honesty and um, practicing the principles in all of our affairs? How does that, how does that track? Because that would seem like something that would be a really important piece of these two things don't work for me anymore. 
Yes. And, and I got into recovery. I continued my relationship with uh, Martika. And then I, as crazy as I was, I got involved with another woman. So, you know, it was really, uh, here I was, so well, uh, sober. I, I, I mean, I, I was going to meetings, but I wasn't honest because I was still breaking that vow. And then when the proverbial stuff hit the fan and the two women found out about each other, you know, I, I, I was up the river without a paddle. But even, you know, in in recovery, I still had that manipulative part of me of wheezing my way out of situations. Uh, And um, then in uh, 2003, I took a leave of absence because it just got to be overwhelming. I was sober, and I I guess through talking to my sponsor and talking to priests as well, I've never had a sponsor who was a priest, but um, every one of my sponsors has been Catholic, not that that makes a difference, but it was when I decided, you know, I have to straighten out. And then I, you know, my second, uh, the, the first relationship was over. And my second relationship basically said to me, you know, what is it you're going to do is we can't continue like this. You know, uh, my first relationship was very accepting the fact that I was a priest and I was a boyfriend. The second uh, woman wasn't as uh, congenial in that type. So I decided to take a leave of absence from the priesthood, and I went to work uh, in a government position. And, you know, then I felt so good about myself because I was sober. I had this girlfriend. I was working. Not that priesthood wasn't work. You do get a salary. But I was living a clean life, a clean life, and that felt good. And then we broke up. And then for a few-year period, I did not have any relationship with anybody. And people started to ask me, why don't you go back? Why don't you go back? You were a great priest. And I went to the bishop in uh, 2009 and asked him, I told him, you know, that I've been living clean, uh, clean and sober, but also living a celibate life. And, um, so I, they took me back, and I returned to priesthood in 2010. And even, you know, at that point, it is I never thought uh, of going back into a relationship with a woman. I just said, this is what I want to do. And my time at this one parish in Huntington, New York, were the best seven years of my life. I was clean. I was sober. No relationships, uh, no thoughts of relationships, uh, and lived very good life, very good life those seven years. And then 2017, I was transferred to another parish, and there was a woman there who I tried to help, and she took it to a, a another level uh, of helping, and, and uh, she made accusations against me, and I was suspended, sent to a... Um, psychological facility, went to a polygraph examination, and all the stuff of the other women came out. The church did not know of these other women previous to this, and um, so I was uh, suspended in 2018, three years ago. So the woman who made the accusation, she was 
the accusation was what just that you she had you guys had had sex or was there right. some okay so it's an accusation that's not legal for the church but it wasn't it has nothing it's not illegal anywhere else correct and since then she has filed a civil suit against uh Stephen Donnelly the parish that I was in Maria Regina and the diocese of Rockville Center I was uh originally going to be deposed May of 2020, but because of COVID, that deposition never came to fruition. And then in September of 2020, almost a year ago, the diocese uh, filed for bankruptcy, and you cannot have litigation against the corporation in bankruptcy. So the case is basically in limbo. Um, what her charges are against me is that it was um, that I abused uh, my my supervisory position. I was not her supervisor. I was not the pastor, and uh, really the the case ha- has no merit. But she's just as many other people looking for money. Uh, I would suppose I've had no contact with her. Since July of 2018, nor do I care to, and um, it is what it is. Yes. How does that? It seems like your relationship with the belief system of the Catholic Church has been quite a struggle with the vow of celibacy, the premarital sex, that that all the different aspects of it. That it is. It has not been a kind process to you. Does that? color i mean that's a that's a different relationship than your i'm guessing personal relationship with with god but that relationship with the actual church and the organization that's that that's one relationship and it doesn't sound like it's been a very pleasant one well i i would say that i recognize church laws do i agree with every church law no not particularly of course, you know, to come out of the pulpit and say something like that it would be, uh, you know, abominable. I, I would never think of doing that. But yes, I did have that struggle. And I think part of the struggle wasn't in my formation process, but it was, you know, having started a relationship previous to my ordination. And then it was like, I just thought it was okay. It certainly wasn't okay according to church teaching, but I just thought it was okay. So yes, there was a personal struggle about what I believed was okay. And then there was the struggle with what the church believed was okay. But I do say that at the present time, I still go to church. I only go to church on Sundays. I I pray every day and different uh, people will ask me for prayers and I would respect that and honor that. And when people have asked me about, well, being a fact that you seem to like women, why wouldn't you you know, jump and become an Episcopal priest or or Presbyterian or a Protestant minister and get into, you know, uh, have a relationship. But since I've been suspended in 2018, the two, my two badges of courage, so to speak, is number one, that I've not relapsed. I have not picked up a drink or a drug. And even though at the present time I have nobody monitoring me in any way whatsoever. And two, that I've uh, not even had a date. I, it's, it's really crazy to think about it when 
I was an active priest. I, I was involved in relationships. And now that I'm um, living, you know, a, uh, I don't want to say the life of a bachelor, but living a you civilian. Know, um, civilian life. Yeah, that's a, that's a proper word. The secular in the secular world is um, I'm not. I'm not interested in, in, in getting involved in a relationship. So what a dichotomy, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It really is. So it's, it's very, uh, the, you know, those of us, the, us alcoholics, we are dichotomous people. Yeah. So <laughs> yes, we are. Yes, I, I, we bu- are. I buy it hook, line and sinker. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> So your recovery, you've been in recovery for 19 years, both in and out of priesthood. And what are the things, the the basic things that have kept you sober, no matter what is going on in your life? I choose to uh, stipulate three different words that has helped me on a daily basis, because I do live this program one day at a time. I don't look in the rearview mirror. I see the through the windshield about what's ahead of me and I see good things. Yes, I have to recognize uh, those things in the rearview mirror. The further away they get, the uh, more distant they are. But three words that I use every day, every day, and I, when I work with sponsees, and I do have three of them at the present time, is uh, I, I the first word I use is gratitude. I give gratitude to God of my understanding each and every day and frequently throughout the day, the gratitude of a new day, the gratitude of my health. I'm 66 years old. I don't take any medicine whatsoever. I'm healthy. I exercise. I walk every day. So I I give gratitude to God for that. I surrender. I surrender each morning to this disease of alcoholism, to the disease of addiction, Knowing where it took me, uh, and I threw up the white flag a long time ago, I didn't lose the battle. I won the war. I won the the war against addiction for today and only for today. And the third word that I, uh, part of my mantra, would be acceptance. I accept the fact that I am an alcoholic. I accept the fact that I'm a drug addict. I accept the fact that I cannot pick up a drink, that I cannot pick up a drug. And I've been very blessed in my sobriety in a sense that, you know, I've been in situations where alcohol was flowing, so to speak, as a sports fan. I've been to many sporting events through my years of sobriety and never thought of having a beer or, or, you know, I still have. Uh, a brother and two nephews who drink. Um, I don't want to take anybody's inventory. But if I live those three words every day of gratitude, surrender, and acceptance, I, I, find, I, 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 I have a good chance. I go to about four or five AA meetings a week. I'm active. At the current time, I'm not doing any service instead of the service of helping others. I don't have any commitments uh, presently. I speak to my sponsor once a week. I speak to my sponsees every other day. And I just try to do the right thing each day. Um, you know, bring these principles into all our affairs. Um, I do that. I, you know, when people say, what step are you working on? I say, all oh, 12. Because that's basically where I am today. Uh, and uh, I embrace 
other people, you know, anniversaries and whatever. I do celebrate. Uh, actually, it's one month from today. I'll celebrate 19 years, but I celebrate every day. You know, to me, 19 years, nine years, nine months, nine days. If you haven't picked up a drink or a drug today, you're doing the right thing. And uh, so for me, it's living this program one day at a time and living life on life's terms. A lot of the different AA idioms and sayings and, you know, let go, let God uh, one day at a time. Well, I do live it one day at a time. But, um, yeah, I, I suppose I, I subscribe to them. And it's a great life, a great life. Um, you know, during this past year with COVID, I've heard of people who've gone out, uh, people who've come back, and uh, people who came in during COVID where the only alternative for many of them was Zoom. And I give them so much credit to um, to, to, to begin their, their journey to, of sobriety with Zoom, uh, without that personal contact. I love people and I love being at meetings. And during COVID, I was blessed to be in a group where there would be eight of us who met in the living room. No, we did not wear masks, but yes, we did social distance. And uh, we were meeting every morning. And then as it got warmer, we moved the meeting outside. And then as it started to get colder, uh, there was a patio and they, the gentleman who owns the house put up this big tent and with space heaters. And New York gets very cold, by the way. Um, <laughs> we're not, you know, we're not the weather you're, uh, although today we're probably hotter than you are, but that's okay. Is uh, we So I've, um, I would say in the last year, I've been to, minimum of 300 meetings. And when people say, why do you go to so many meetings if you're clean and sober? I say, because I don't know which one I need. Uh, I could hear something on a Tuesday morning. I could hear something on a Thursday afternoon and not hear anything the rest of the week uh, that did I really embrace. So, um, and I'm there for others. I'm there for myself, but I'm there for others. And uh, what a wonderful program. Wonderful program. I, I definitely am a happy customer of Alcoholics Anonymous. Absolutely. What what made you decide to uh to, you know, do your fourth step out loud through the the book? Wonderful, wonderful question. What what happened with that is and yes, I love the your your uh how you stated that because it is a fourth step. What happened was a woman who uh diane o'brien who was a ghostwriter co-authored whatever words we'd like to use for it called me in january of 2019 she knew i had been uh sent away and she asked how i was doing and i said very good i said you know she says you know father there's so many different rumors floating around i said i'll give you the gospel truth and i told her and she said to me you know, Father, you're the, the most compelling person I have ever met. And I'd love to work with you on a book. And, you know, my jaw dropped uh, six feet to the ground. Well, five and a half feet uh, to the ground. And I uh, said, why? And I had helped her and her family through a very tragic incident back in 2011 and stayed close to her family through that time. And when we first got together, I said, well, what, how is it that we'll do this? And she says, tell me a story. And it was almost like I saw Diane as a sponsor 
or maybe even a confessor. And I just had that grace to be rigorously honest, brutally honest, whatever words they are. And it just started to flow. Uh, you know, as we know, half measures avail us nothing. And I said, if, if we're going to go through with this project of writing this book, I'm going to be 100% honest. Uh, and so although there's things in there that some people may disagree with or whatever, this is my story and I'm holding to it. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a fourth step to the world. So, um, you know, but I do respect people's anonymity. I do respect, you know, people I've worked with in the program and I've never uh, broken anybody's anonymity or, or shared things. Oh, do you know what John did? And no, I'm not like that. And that's part of my, my, my Catholicism as a being a confessor on Saturday afternoons, uh, things that people told me, um, never, you know, never broke the confessional seal and never shared them with anybody. Uh, and I hold the same thing when I work with sponsees. I would never reveal what a sponsee shared with me. And I've done a lot of fifth steps with people, both sponsees and non-sponsees in the program. That, I mean, it, it's it's such a testament, right? Is and, and it's such an example of how alcoholism, you know, addiction has, you know, has no, it doesn't care what color, race, creed, age, it, it, it affects everyone equally. And just the example of you having done this and, and talking about it out loud, I think is really important. I'm sure there's a lot of people who struggle to see priests as human beings and also can't imagine, you know, maybe they think that their, their faith should be something that protects them from addiction. And when it doesn't, they, I'm sure that that's incredibly painful. So your story is, is one that can really break through to, to that group of people. What has the reception been like uh, of the book? Very well. Uh, I currently live in an apartment in Huntington and I would think I, I, I can't put a number, but uh, anywhere from, 500 to 1,000 people in Huntington alone have read the book, and 98%, almost 99% of people who've come up to me, who've seen me in restaurants, supermarkets, gas stations, you know, the day-to-day living, have just said, what an amazing story uh, and the courage that you have. 1%, uh, maybe 1.5%, is said, you know, how could you have remained on the altar as a cocaine addict with a with a girlfriend? And my response to them is, uh, I'm an addict and an alcoholic, and I wasn't being uh, rational with with my life. I really believe that my story is one of forgiveness, one of redemption, in a sense of how we can fall down but get back up. And it's in the getting back up, it's in the recovering and the distancing ourselves from a situation, whether it be addiction, alcoholism, or whatever it is, is what makes us true heroes. Uh, and I'm not trying to put a, you know, a, a crown on my head or whatever, because all I have is today, uh, I could relapse tomorrow and, and you know, uh, you know, start over. I'm not certainly... Don't, that doesn't come in, into my focus, uh, per se, but I see it as I fell down. I got back up. I fell down. I had different issues in my life with um, addiction and women, and 
today I know that the God of my understanding loves me, supports me, forgives me, and carries me through today and with the grace of God tomorrow and the next day. I love it. I love it. And thank you so much for sharing your story coming on here. Your book is called A Saint and a Sinner, The Rise and Fall of a Beloved Catholic Priest, a memoir. And where can people find your book or do you, your website, a saintandasinner.com? Yes. Most, uh, the easiest way right now is to get on Amazon, amazon.com, a saint and a sinner. We've sold uh, many copies there. We are in a couple of local bookstores here in Long Island, and we have just recently, about a month ago, started working with a publicist who is getting it out to influencers and other people. So uh, one day we would hope to be in a bookstore. But for today, for the moment, as people could find it on Amazon.com. Awesome. Thank you so, so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your time. And I know lots of people are going to love hearing this. Thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me on. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at LionRock.life.